You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma podcast. Mike Hearn here, your host, back with another episode. Excited to share this episode with you today. But before we do, I've got to thank our sponsors. First of all, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. They've been a huge part of this podcast for the last few years. So the Oklahoma Hall of Fame have been sharing Oklahoma's story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com. And for daily updates, go to Oklahoma HOF on Instagram and give them a follow. Our other sponsor today is the Chickasaw Nation. Now, the Chickasaw Nation have sponsored pretty much everything in Oklahoma. They're a huge supporter of Oklahoma. And it's an honor to have their name and their brand supporting this podcast. So a huge shout out to Governor Anatoby for supporting this podcast. It really means a lot. Our third sponsor is Diffie Ford Lincoln down in El Reno. Now, this one makes me so happy because these guys are great friends of mine, um, play a lot of golf together. I've bought my cars from them. Do most of my oil changes down there, have a cup of coffee, hang out down in El Reno. It's a good spot to go. And not only are they great friends, but they provide a great service. So for over 60 years, a third generation family owned Oklahoma business down in El Reno. They're also in Bethany as well. So people in the Bethany area know the Diffies really well. But if you're looking for anything new used, um, Ford, Lincoln, or whatever, I'm sure they could find anything you want. Um, check them out, DiffieFord.net, and then on Instagram at DiffieFordLincoln. And let's get into today's episode. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma. Mike Hunt here, your host, back with another episode. We are at Kim Ray today in Oklahoma City. Um, you've passed it. You know, if you live in Oklahoma City, you've probably passed it thousands of times driving up and down Broadway. Hopefully you haven't been pulled over by the police who generally patrol Broadway in this area. Um, but Thomas Hill III's on the podcast with me, current CEO of Kim Ray. Um, have two friends that did work for Kim Ray before one of my friends moved to Germany. Uh, we were on the golf team together. Um, shout out Eric Smith. Um, but excited to dive into the story. Uh, there's so much about this business. It's been around for a very, very, very long time, which is rare in Oklahoma. Mm. Um, family business is, is a lot of the stories that we share on the podcast. Uh, but obviously, you know, you have a personal story as well, which we're going to dive into. But when people generally meet you for the first time, um, I mean, What's like your kind of elevator pitch introduction? Hi, my name is, you know, how, how yeah. do you start? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for uh, for having me on the show. Really, really appreciate it and love the work that you do. Man, elevator pitch. You know, they always tell you, you should be able to uh, tell anybody what you're passionate about or what you're trying to accomplish and the time it takes to go two or three floors on an elevator. I'm not sure I'm, I'm capable of doing that. You know, part of the problem of being a part of a family that's been uh, a significant part of the of the community for as long as my family has been is that a lot of people know who I am and I don't know them. So I'm all, I'm often at a disadvantage, quite frankly. They they know who I am and they know what my family has done and who yeah. my family are. But if I get an opportunity to talk to people, you know, I, I want to let them know that that we're about a lot more than just making oil field controls. You know, Kim Ray started in 1948. Interestingly enough, you know, my grandfather uh, was established here in Oklahoma City. He had a wife, three kids, uh, you know, a home, a church that they loved. And he was working for a company called Black Civils and Bryson. And uh, they were bought out by another company. And we're going to move all the engineers to Kansas City. And he said, I don't want to move to Kansas City. I like Oklahoma. I like Oklahoma City. This is where I want to raise my family. So he quit a very 
very lucrative and very good job to start his own business, which is risky in any day and age. In 1948, it was probably even more so. And uh, so that, that's always impressed me that he had the uh, nerve that, to do that, that, that it was important enough to him to, to keep his family grounded here. I think that uh, as a flyover state, we, we have a bad rap, but people who live and work here know that this is a really, really great place to, to put your roots down. My dad's family uh, homesteaded in northeastern Oklahoma, Mays County, which which is now kind of prior area. Um, and I have ancestors that uh, Cherokee Indian ancestors that came here on the Trail of Tears. So, you know, people ask me, uh, you know, where I'm from. I say I'm an Okie. Now, ironically, I was born in Brunswick, Georgia, because my father's a Marine and he was stationed in Georgia when when I was born. But we were not there long. And so I'm an Okie, love Oklahoma, love Oklahoma City. And what Kim Ray has given my family the opportunity to do is to be a part of a lot of people's lives. Uh, we currently employ almost 900 people here in Oklahoma City. Uh, we give those people an opportunity to earn a good living, to have benefits, to have access to the things that being a part of a community like Kim Ray give you access to. And then we use uh, the success that they bring because quite frankly, uh, most days, if I don't show up for work, everything still happens, right? I mean, I'm not the one doing the doing the stuff. And so those people uh, create a lot of success, create a lot of, of opportunity, and then we can use that in the community to make sure that uh, we support the arts and education and, and the things that I think make a community a place to live as, as opposed to just a place to exist. And so love the city, love Oklahoma, and, and we just uh, we just love being a part of everything here. Yeah. What's your earliest memory of the business? Oh, my goodness. Well, every time we kind of go around the room and, you know, how long have you been at Kimberly? What do you do? I've been at Kimberly since I was six. Uh, that's when we moved back to Oklahoma City after my dad got out of college at Oklahoma State. Go Pokes. Uh, I also I went to preschool at Oklahoma State. So I've been bleeding orange since I was a very, very young, young person. And uh so we moved to Oklahoma City and he came to work full time for Kim Ray and he would bring my brother and I out here on evenings and on weekends when he was working and let us play out in the shop, which today would be um, completely against the law. Um, but we used to run around the shop and collect bits of things. And so I've been I've been hanging out at Kim Ray since I was little. Uh, every family dinner, Christmas you know, Easter didn't matter if my grandfather and my dad were together, they were talking about Kim Ray and I wanted to be a part of that conversation. And so I would sit at the table and listen to them talk about, uh, talk about the business. And, uh, from the time I was in, in kindergarten, really, I wanted to be an engineer and I wanted to run Kim Ray. And at that point I didn't even know what that meant, you know, but yeah. so forever. That's uh, that's really cool to be around that, though, right? And there's something special about family business, and especially when you get, you know, because all the stats are around, like, that third generation that's like, no, we don't want anything to do with it, and the fourth is, like, sell it for land or whatever, you know? Right. You see all, the, all right. the farmers or whatever it is that do that, but, you know, having that passion for engineering and being involved and, you know, obviously the ties to Oklahoma State and think, yeah, like, I'm... I'm, you know, I'm going to go to Stillwater. I'm going to get my degree. And it's nice to know that you have a plan, right? right? You know, because right. that's the one thing I think, and, and you with, with all the leadership stuff that you do with the podcast and the foundation is people who grow up that have no plan, you know, it's okay to come out of college with no plan. Like there's still plenty of time, 
Right. But there's something special about when you know exactly what you want to do because you can just focus everything you have, all your attention on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. In all honesty, though, when you talk about the issues in, in family companies, second generation, third generation, um, you know, everything looks great now, but but we did have a disruption here. And uh, so I was in leadership about 10, now almost 11 years ago, and uh, uh, had really uh, allowed my life to get out of hand. And there's a whole lot to that story that we would never have time to go over in a podcast. Um, I did write a book about that so people can read my story. It's not that I don't, I don't want to talk about it. I talk about it all the time, but I kind of blew my life up and ended up in rehab and, and didn't think actually my family fired me from our company and didn't think I would ever come back to Kimray. And uh, a little over a year later, uh, because of the changes that um, that I was able to to make in my life, because of the people that invested in me, uh, I got an opportunity to come back and got an opportunity to really lead from a position of health. Uh, before I was I was not a healthy person. I'm a natural leader, and people naturally follow me. And I tell people I wasn't a bad boss, but I was a boss before, and now I want to be a leader. And there's a significant difference uh, in terms of what you're trying to accomplish. So obviously, I want Kimberly to be successful. And, and if we're not successful and not profitable, then we don't have all the opportunities to do the things that we want to do. Yeah. But I don't run Kimray from a standpoint of, of making money. That's not the point of what we do here. And that's not why I come to work. I tell people I don't have to work. I, you know, I could have not come back. I could certainly retire now. Uh, I come to work every day because I love interacting with our people and I love to see people's personal visions and personal dreams come true. And Kim Ray's helping people do that every day, our people. And then the people that we interact with in the community, our vendors, our customers, you know, just about everybody that Kim Ray touches, our motto, you know, our mission is to make a difference in people's lives. And we wanted to do that any way we can. So that's why we do this. That's yeah. why we work. I, I tell people the world doesn't need any more valves. You know, somebody will, somebody will make valves. You know, that's, but we make a lot of money making valves. It's our business. It's what we're good at. And then we can use those resources to do what we're really about, mm-hmm. which is making a difference in our community. Yeah. Two questions, and, and I'll link the book in the description so people can go to that and read the full story. But what was the kind of I guess catalyst that led to you getting fired by the family. Like, what was that? What happened? Yeah. So, grew up in a uh, very highly driven, productive family, which is not a bad thing necessarily. Um, of course, my grandfather, obviously a genius, forty-four patents. You know, started a company, ran the company for you know decades. Uh, my father, likewise, extremely accomplished, driven, uh, you know, a Marine, you can imagine. Um, what I saw growing up was I saw these men in my life who, in my view, this wasn't true, obviously, about them, but what I saw was that they were never wrong. They were never without a solution. They were never afraid. They were never, you know, insecure. They always knew. I thought they knew everything. I thought they had a solution and I thought that's what I was supposed to be. But of course, I wasn't, right? I didn't feel that way. And so that disconnect between what I believed I was supposed to be and what I felt created a lot of turmoil. Some childhood trauma. I grew up in a wonderful home. My parents are great. They're still together, you know, nothing like that. But um, I, one of the things I learned in recovery is that trauma isn't always traumatic like you think about trauma. It's not necessarily being beaten or having, I mean, there's a lot of things that get triggered when you're, when you're young and you put all that together 
And I grew up thinking that my value was based on my performance and my accomplishment. And that's a treadmill that speeds up on a consistent basis until pretty soon you're running as fast as you can run and you're not okay anymore. And uh, I dealt with a lot, I've come up with a lot of ways to cope with that, some of which were just performance oriented. I just did more and more and more and collected things and did all kinds of things. And some of those behaviors were not healthy. And eventually I just couldn't. You know, I tell people it's like running on a treadmill and you just keep turning the speed up and until eventually you trip. And when you do that thing, shoots you out the back end. I wasn't doing my job. I was not, you know, there was a lot of things going on. It just finally became obvious that I wasn't okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's like that, that treadmill that was it that, that marathon runner that Kipchoge, they put him, they put people on it and they're like, Hey, this is the marathon pace. See how long you can keep up. And then <laughs> they finally fall over and go flying exactly um, but yeah I mean it makes sense right like you know you, you, your grandfather you have, you have a lot to live up to you know your grandfather sets the standard right like 44 patents he's a genius takes a huge risk to start his own company your dad being a marine like those are two generations that grew up you know every generation we grow up different don't we correct and then you know the generational norms of me and you are different and you to your grandparents and you and right. your dad are different so adding up all of that stress and then you know the company's growing and growing and like i have to meet this i'm not surprised it, something's <laughs> got to give right and whether yeah. that's hey you know like it it could be a family relationship it could be whatever it could be getting fired the other question I had is what then leads to the recovery and the, okay, I can't do this. I've just got fired by the family. I need help. How can I better, you know, better myself, but then also how can I add more value and come back? Yeah, so I, I was very lucky that... Um just kind of a, in, a, I, you know, I really believe that God intervened in my life in, in a very tangible way, and, and I got... Um, uh, got an opportunity to spend some time actually literally the day I got fired with, uh, with a man who, uh, kind of started going into the things that I was dealing with. And we really literally spent an entire day kind of wading through the mess that I had created and just decided that, you know, some of my issues were significant enough that I really needed a focused amount of time to work on them. So made the decision uh, to literally go to rehab. I went to rehab for 67 days. Um, and uh, that was one of the, the most difficult times in my life, but turned out to be really a turning point. I learned a lot of things about myself, um, went back and kind of unpacked some of the, of the things that had gotten messed up in, in my belief system and in my own identity and got those things kind of on the right path. And we're never done, right? I mean, we're all a work in progress and I'm still developing and, and learning and growing, but, but at least kind of got, got straightened out a little bit and started getting healthy and, and, uh, and then came back and I actually started another company, which is kind of irrelevant, but I was ready to go on. I was ready to move on. I think sometimes, uh, we have to give things up in order to get them back. And, and so I think that giving up Kimray, uh, being willing to let that go and, and seeing myself, because that was part of the problem, right? My identity was I was the head of Kimray. And if that's my identity, then I'm in trouble. You know, just like if my identity is that I'm any one thing, I'm going to be in trouble. And so having that taken away actually was good. And then through therapy, I, I gave it up, you know, so I didn't have it. So I let go of it and became okay with that. Then I think that 
produce the opportunity to come back and do it from a healthy position. And I'm quite frankly willing to not be the CEO of Kimry tomorrow if that's the best thing for Kimry, the best thing for me. Right now, I think we're doing great things and I think we're making a difference in people's lives. And as long as we can do that, um, I'm going to keep doing that. And I'm in a place in life where my kids are off doing their own, you know, yeah. so they're all in college or, or married and doing their own thing. I've only got one grandchild. When I have a few more, I may want to spend less time here and more time running around with kids. But yeah. So while you're going through kind of, you know, soul searching, right, going through therapy for 67 days, there's obviously points along that 67 days that, you know, you're like I said, your identity isn't tied into being a CEO of a company that's right. based on a balance sheet. You know, it's it's how am I as a dad? What are my kids up to? You know, like raising a family and, and all of that and then giving back to the community and all that stuff. What were the kind of breakthroughs then during during the, you know, that that's 67 days that really kind of ch- turned your mind around and changed your mind to think, yeah, I am okay giving this up. I'm going to focus my way on something else. Yeah. Wow, that's a that's a difficult question because there are a lot. Um, there were a couple, I think, that were that were probably more significant than anything else. I was raised in church. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been a believer, you know, functionally my whole life, and and uh, um, even taught adult Sunday school for fifteen years. And but the reality was, it was it was another thing that I did that was part of a constructed identity that who I thought I needed to be, and it didn't it didn't connect with me in a way that was that really impacted me as a human being. So uh, the second weekend I was in rehab, um, a friend. A, who's still a friend of mine, uh, ended up being my roommate for a while, but um, he befriended me and he offered to take me to church. He was much farther along in his program. And so he had earned the ability to leave campus on, on, you know, to go to church on the weekend. I wouldn't be able to do that unless somebody at his level took me. And so he offered to do that for me and took me to church. And for the first time in 48 years, um, I, I had kind of an experience at church and I don't really know how to explain it other than it wasn't about the stuff I knew because I'd studied the Bible and was very familiar with theology. I was very good at systematic theology and apologetics, but it didn't, it wasn't part of me. And I literally had an experience with God and I, you know, we can go on about it, but it just happened. And, uh, it was, it was dramatic and it was intense and it was very real. And that was kind of a point where I went, okay, that's where I need to be headed. And I realized that, um, that God forgave me, which I don't know that I understood forgiveness. And I wasn't willing to forgive myself, which is part of the shame cycle that I'd spent my whole life, you know, literally medicating myself with behaviors over. And, uh, that was the point that was the beginning point for then me to be able to unpack other things in, in therapy. And, uh, and I still point back to that and, and I'm, I'm still impacted much differently by being in uh, corporate worship than I was ever before. It's just kind of, things just changed. And the, maybe the coolest part about it is, is I didn't understand it and I didn't cause it because my whole life I've been a control freak, right? Like I set a goal, achieve it, you know, plan steps. I'm an engineer, you know, I've got a plan for everything. I've got a solution for everything. I see the whole world in a systems view. It's just a system. You can fix it. If it's broken, you can fix it. And I couldn't fix me. I was broken and I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. 
and I didn't do anything to, you know, that, like that wasn't me. That was something outside of me acting on me. And I think that was necessary for me to go through that. So, yeah, it, it's interesting. There's, and I'm sure you come across this as well. There's so many stories like that, right? Where kids have grown up in a church and it's just normal to them, right? Every Wednesday, Sunday, they're there. It's just right. a social thing. And they don't have that experience that you talked about until later on what they least expect it. Right. And they're like, oh, now I get it. Now this is my walk, right, or my journey, you know, and, and it's it's not just showing up, you know, to see grandparents and friends at a, at, you know, at a social Absolutely. gathering. So that I'm sure resonates with a lot of people. In When you're in, in, in for 67 days in, in – um, in, you know, doing therapy and, and doing this, is it with Hope is Alive? Is that the connection? It was somewhere else? No, I, okay. I, I went out of state to, okay. to a rehab facility. Hope is Alive isn't actually a rehab. They're a, you they're mentioned a so- the house, and I was thinking. Yeah, they're a sober living gotcha. facility. Yeah. No, I was actually in a rehab center. And, okay. and, uh, so when, when, you're in, when you're there, did, are you, you mentioned launching a company after. Are you planning that, or are you just focusing on you? Yeah, I wasn't you planning that while I was in rehab. That right. you're, in, you're in some sort of therapy from breakfast to dinner basically every right. day. So one of the greatest things about I, I I basically tell people, I think everybody should go to rehab. I think everybody's got problems that they're not resolving, and um, and I'm in therapy. I, I see a therapist. But, you know, you see a therapist like, say, one hour a week or one hour every other week. It would take you 30 years to get as much therapy as I got in 67 days, right? So got a lot of work done in a short period of time. It's very disruptive and it's very difficult, but it, but it's, it's really beneficial. So no, I I wouldn't say I was really planning the future. Um, while I was in rehab, I was really just trying to figure out how I was going to exist. And then when I got home and said, okay, I got to do something now. And, you know, it's kind of in my DNA to not just to go to work for somebody, but to kind of start things and create things. And so I just, you know, with a friend of mine, we were going to do something and we had some, we had some IP and we had a good idea. And, but then he wanted to go back to doing what he was doing and they offered to bring me back to camera and we said, okay, let's do that. Yeah. So So that happens then you come back here, you walk in and not to say that you walk in with your tail between your legs, but you walk in like, Hey, like I know that, you know, I've gone through this. I've grown. Let me show you what I can do now sort of mentality, I assume. Yeah. Well, you know, the first thing was, is that the board uh, did not bring me back in a senior leadership position. They brought me back in kind of a junior leadership position. I actually came back uh, filling a role that I had filled probably 15 years before and working for somebody that I hired while I was the head of Kimray. So um, that's humbling and that's good. That's a good thing, right? Because at the end of the day, part of the point was, my title and, and who, you know, that's not who I am. That's just what I do. And I should be able to do that job, do whatever job I'm, I'm given to do. That's part of, I think good leaders are willing to do whatever's necessary and they don't stand on, I'm not a big fan of positional authority. I used a lot of positional authority before, you know, you're the CEO or you're the president. So people have to do what you say. That's technically true, but that's a really bad motivator for, for most people. And so I'd really rather use relational authority or relational uh, influence. And uh, so it gave me an opportunity to practice that and also gave an opportunity for the board and my family uh, to just watch me and see if, see if I was really different. And as they began to understand that I really had had a significant change in my life and change in how I viewed life and how I approached things, then I was given additional responsibility. And over a period of about 
three years, three and a half years, um, we got to the point where my dad wanted to step back again from, he had stepped back in uh, to manage the company, to, to act as CEO. And uh, he really didn't want to do that. That was not, that was not his plan to be back in that role. And he wanted to be able to step out of that role again. And so they decided to give me a try. And so, so far, I think I'm still on a trial basis, quite frankly. <laughs> I may be well, maybe that's what we all are yeah. on a trial basis, but so far it's going all right. Yeah. Always on probation, right? Exactly. That's exactly. The, when I got, uh, it's funny, when I got my first visa to be in the States after my college visa, my first work visa, it was like an 18 month probation period. And I was scared to do anything. You know, you get pulled <laughs> over and that's, it's done. You right. know, like it's never speeding. It was so, so yeah, I know what the probation period is like. Um, you mentioned, obviously, you know, Kimray is not about just building valves, right? right. Anybody can build valves. You're a lot Well, nobody can build valves like we build right. valves, but, you know. Other people can and it's, you know. <laughs> But the foundation is a huge part and, and the leadership side of things. And I know you have a podcast and other things. What was the kind of state of the union in the foundation side of things before you left and then when you came back? Well, so the foundation uh, is is a result of me coming back. It okay. did not exist before. Okay. And so as I, as I uh, kind of worked out my, my new identity and my new ideology, maybe is a good way to put it, in, in leadership. And, you know, the, the groundbreaking thing for me was that my value was intrinsic. It wasn't about what I had done, my education or my performance, and that my value was the same as everybody else's. In a performance-based value system, for me to be worth more, you have to be worth less. It's a competition, right? And, and so that's the way I lived. I lived in competition with everyone. And, and it wasn't that I, that I, looked down on people per se, but in order for my identity to work, I had to be more valuable than you. I had to do more than you, perform more than you. And that, that ends up impacting the way you treat people. You know, it's very nuanced. I don't know that people can always articulate that it's going on, but they understand, they know it. And so I tell people I wasn't a bad boss, but I was a boss and I did want to be at the top of the food chain. Well, now I believe and we believe that everybody at Camry is equally valuable. We're not the same. We're very different and we have different responsibilities. I make decisions that no one else at Camry makes. That's my role, but it's not my identity and it doesn't change my value. And so I don't, I don't want to be respected less, but I want everybody at Camry to be respected the same. So as I got a chance to start actually leading that way and, and working that way, it was phenomenal, the impact it had on our people. Kimberly's always been a great place to work. We've always taken good care of our people, and we've always been very successful at what we do. But we got even more successful, and we have accomplished things in the last six years that that just far outstrip anything that Kimberly has done before. And so I started realizing that that really this would be great if more people would treat their people this way. You know, I'm never going to be able to hire everybody in Oklahoma. And so, you know, how do we impact more people's lives? Well, we do it by impacting leaders. And so I began to, to see myself as maybe backing away from Kimray a little bit and working with other companies. And I meet at least once a year for a week with a group of CEOs and we kind of pick each other's brains and we all sign NDAs. We can say anything. We can tell them anything that's going on in our lives, anything that's going on in our business. And since they know what it's like to be in our seat, 
they can give us honest feedback. And so I kind of pitched this idea and literally everybody in the group said, no, 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 no. You need to stay at Camry. That's your platform. And you need to bring people to you and show them what you're doing. And if they get it, then they'll go back and do it. And so I came back a week later and started the Kimmel Foundation for Recovering Leadership, which kind of off the book title, you know, we, I wrote a book called Recovering Leadership. And so we called, and Kimmel's my granddad's name, so kind of hearken to our, our roots and, and what we're about. None of this would be possible if Garmin hadn't done what he did and didn't have the ideals and the principles he had. So we really looked to him as kind of the founder of all of this. And the idea was, is that we would be a community of leaders that would promote and support and help leaders lead in ways that are healthy, but most importantly, lead in ways that value people and respect people. Um, and that way we might reach, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people. I don't know how big it'll get. I, it's not my problem. It'll, you know, things happen. So that was how the, that was how the foundation got started. And really it's, it's very simple. It's, we, we believe in a value culture. We believe that everyone's equally intrinsically valuable. We need to act that way. That sounds really simple. And when I say it in a room full of leaders, everybody shakes their head yes, right? Nobody's going to disagree that everybody, you know, nobody's going to say, no, some people are not valuable. No, everybody agrees that. But then when you get down to actually how you run your company, the decisions you make, the benefits, I mean, just nuanced things, that gets more complicated and more difficult. And a lot of people don't really know, know how to do it or what they're capable of doing. And it's easier when you have a herd, you know. So bison, we like bison. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that there's bison around here, and there's a lot, there's a lot of bison <laughs> it's, in it's here. Everywhere. And um, it's in the entryway. It's yeah. in your room. Yeah, it's a lot. We like bison, and for a real simple reason, bison are interesting creatures. Um, when I tell people that I like bison, and, and we're actually trying to get some bison on our property, they say, "Oh man, they're very difficult to keep and contain," which is not untrue. A full-grown bison weighs about two thousand pounds. I don't know if you know this; they can leap over over a six foot fence from a standing position, like deer. Have you ever seen a deer bound over a fence? That's what a bison will do. I know you wouldn't think that. They can run about 35 or 40 miles an hour if they need to. So if you think there's enough room between you and a bison and that you can get over the fence first, you're wrong on both accounts, right? But here's the thing. Bison are really not very complicated. They need three things to be let's say, content to stay where they are. First and foremost, they, they need their basic needs met, right? Food, water, that kind of stuff. And then they, they need to feel safe. So if they're harassed, I always find that interesting because they have no natural predators in North America except us. We're the ones who killed them all. Um, sometimes a pack of wolves will get a, a weak one or an old one. Every once in a while, a bear will take down a bison, but by and large, they're fine. But animals, other predators do harass them. If they're harassed, they will move. But then most importantly, they need community. So if you try to keep a one bison in a pen, he or she is going to go looking for other bison and they can get out of anything if they really want to. But if you meet those needs, if they have community, they feel safe and they have plenty of food and water, they will stay where they are. The herd in Yellowstone's been there for you know 200 years and they're not interested in going anywhere. Turns out we're just like that. If you think about it, as leaders, we are we are literally building a herd of people, right? And we would like those people to stay because we spend a lot of money and time getting them here and training them. If you're leading a company, for sure, or any organization, it's very expensive to have people come and go from your herd, as it were. So what do you have to do? Well, you need to meet their basic needs. They need to be able to take care of their families. And, you know, that's not just pay. That's benefits, that's how you treat them, that's the opportunities they have to take care of their family in, in various ways. They need to feel safe. And, and 
we're really good at physical safety these days. You know, you get in a lot of trouble and it costs you a lot of money if you harm people very often. We're not good at emotional and mental safety. In a, okay. and, and we're not good at even acknowledging that there are mental health issues and sometimes our organizations are creating those mental health issues. So we need to get a lot better at that. But, it, but if we do make people feel safe and then if they're in community and community is not stuffing a bunch of people in the same room, it's people literally being connected. So how do you connect people? Well, people only connect around missional things, right? They connect around things that mean something to them. So for instance, you talked about your friend that you golfed with, right? That's something that you share. You're still at some level connected with that person because of a shared interest, shared experience, right? That's how we connect. So I got 900 people here at Kim Ray. There's very little chance that all of them are going to have something that they're interested in that's going to connect with everybody else. So what do we have? Well, we have a mission at Kimray that everybody can connect to. Everybody's interested in making a difference. They, they're certainly interested in the community making a difference in their life. So that means something to them and connects with them. And then we give them lots of opportunity to make a difference in other people's lives. And we show them how even, the, even just coming to work, working efficiently, doing their jobs well, even if it's just making a valve, has impact. The valve isn't the point. The point is, is that we're putting food on people's tables and we're giving money to a shelter and we're, you know, and, and we do a lot of um, uh, different kinds of matching things where a lot of our community involvement in giving is triggered by our, our people being involved in something. So we get involved in the things they're involved in and we help them. So because of that, we have this bigger thing that we're here doing. We're not just coming to work. We have a bigger thing. And we really do care about each other. And as you get to know people and you treat them well, they treat you well back. So now we have a herd. So we like bison. There are yeah. bison everywhere. I have my bison pin on. It's Bud the bison, which is short for red bud, which is, of course, our state tree. But yeah. it's a silly name for a bison, but he's okay with it. I mean, there's meaning behind it, right? So it there is. Matter. Matter meaning behind is, everything. There's meaning behind it. It's good to go. And they are bison. I'm just going to make this. I know this is a silly <laughs> thing to say, but it's important to me. They are bison. They yeah. are not buffalo. Yeah. And I know we called them buffalo, and people say, well, we've been doing it for a long time. But I think, you know, there's a lot of other things we've done for a long time that we're now getting around to thinking maybe we shouldn't do that anymore. Yeah. I'm saying it's time. It's bison, not buffalo. Yeah. The bison care, and so do I. Yeah. The, the, my, my question, as you were saying that, and you sort of answered it, was, you know, when, when you come back and, you, like you said, you have 900 people here, you're not all going to be, you know, it's not like, hey, let's throw a golf tournament and that's it. Right. You know, you're not all going to be focused on the same thing. And, it, you know, you answered it by saying people come to you and say, hey, I'm interested in this. I do this. I volunteer here. How about we support? But that also comes back to changing the structure and changing allocation of dollars and figure you got to have money to help as well. You know, having bodies and help, you know, in person is great. But dollars also moves the needle as well. Absolutely. So that's a huge leadership change, too, is saying, hey, look. I know we're thankfully and thanks to leadership and you know the business and things we've done over the years we're very good at what we do doesn't matter you know do we need you know how about we take five percent from profits and now that's our you know right. that's our charity budget whatever it is right, right. so it's you know when, when you come back and say hey let's do this foundation it's not just hey let's just do this foundation because it'll make us look good it's an entire operation. It is. Right? There's it so is. much more that goes into it. Absolutely. It's not just putting your name on something. I, I, I do find the dollars thing in, interesting because um, 
when you think of philanthropy, most people think of dollars. Right. Dollars are necessary. You know, we need to buy, you know, supply. I mean, you know, you, you need money to do work. Resources. But we have been throwing money at social problems for as long as Very we've true. been a nation. And the problems are worse today than they've ever been before. We're throwing more money than we've ever thrown. And the problems are worse than they've ever been. I'm a simple man. I'm just an engineer. But when you do something over and over and over again and things don't get better, I say you're not doing the right thing, right? I mean, there's a problem here. So dollars don't solve social problems. Relationships do. So Kimray gives away a lot of money, but we always give money in connection with our people being on the ground involved in the organization because that's where social change occurs, not by writing checks. Writing checks is easy. You know, giving away money is not complicated. It's not difficult. It's not hard to make money. I'm sorry, it's just not. Making money is not, is not difficult. You know what's hard? Loving people. That's hard. Yeah. Being in relationship with people. People are the worst, right? I mean, they're difficult. Yeah. They have problems. We're selfish beings. <laughs> we are. We are. Right? Like, we are. It's a me- we're a mess. Yeah. We're a mess. when you throw money in the mix. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's the tough part. That's the part that takes commitment and yeah. takes time. And so we like to support organizations that are really getting in and being in relationship with people who need help um, and, and doing things that really move the needle in that way. And, yeah. and I think so far we've been pretty successful in that. Yeah, I, I I would seem so, right? <laughs> it looks great. And, and you know, the, I'll link the website to the foundation in the description. People go check that out. And, and we spoke previously before recording. You have a leadership podcast that helps share you know, different leaders and how they do things. Um, focusing then, obviously, on that leadership side of things, you know, like you mentioned, you have that, that core of, you know, hey, we're a bunch of leaders and we have you know, we all have our problems, right? This, Absolutely. This, every leadership person, it's stress. Everyone deals with it differently. Coming together as a group is a huge, you know, benefit to all of you, yeah. whether it's relationships mentally, you know, I'm sure there's so many stories where this group has saved many people, right? Um, across many different things. Does that lead then into you connecting with, with SALT and how that comes out of the ground as well? Yeah, so SALT's a really interesting organization. My, my father was uh, instrumental in, in starting SALT, which stands for Salt and Light Leadership Training. And it comes from a, a verse in the Bible that says we're supposed to be salt and light. We're supposed to be examples of what people who are living healthy lives and taking care of the people around them look like. And that should impact the people around us. It should impact our city. It should impact our organizations. And so what, what SALT does is um, help uh, emerging and established leaders um, find their voice and their their sphere of influence uh, and understand the implications of leadership. But leadership is a responsibility. It's not a privilege. It's a responsibility. And, and uh, unfortunately, too many leaders see achieving a position of what they see as importance or power as accomplishing something for themselves, something to be used for their own benefit and for their own good. And, and quite frankly, it's exactly the opposite. You really shouldn't want to be in leadership because what you're really agreeing to is taking on the responsibility to take care of other people and to serve other people in ways that other people are not required to do. And so we, we, we kind of help people see that and understand that and get in that mindset so that they can then go out 
in whatever way is, is meaningful to them, in whatever organizations they're in, however that works out for them. Uh, we're, we're, SALT's really not about telling you what to do, but that you have a responsibility to do. You have a responsibility to change things for, for the good, to make things better. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, the, like you said, that, that risk factor, right? Like it, there's so many other ways to be a leader without being top of the tree and taking on that risk, you know, just being a leader at the ha- at your house. Absolutely. Or, you know, if you're a soccer coach or whatever it is, um, you know, that, that just that way of life as a leader, perceived leader without the risk is not a bad way to live. Taking no, ownership absolutely in, in what you do, even if it's just, Hey, I'm going to take ownership and getting out of the bed earlier every morning. <laughs> right. And absolutely for a walk or drinking a glass of water. Absolutely. What are the things that, um, you know, other than obviously what you do for the leadership things uh, and the work things. I mean, obviously you're a huge Oklahoma State fan. I am. What uh, what makes you tick? I mean, there's some. <laughs> I also keep. I'm looking at that F1 thing in the corner, which we'll talk about F1 in a second. But what you know, obviously you got six kids. I mean, there's there's other things that keep you occupied. Absolutely. What yeah. uh, you know? What's fun? What do you do on the weekends? What uh, are you do? Big reader? I mean, what's the? What's I'm the a, draw? I am a, I am a huge reader. Um, I. I'm dating myself, but I grew up in an era when if you wanted to know something, you had to go to the library and check out a book. There was no internet. You know, you were lucky if you had encyclopedias at home and you could read those, which I did and I did. Um, So I would go to the library and check out every book on a given topic and read everything. And that's how I learned. And so I love to read. Um, And I do process a lot of information. Uh, I enjoy art. I am not an accomplished artist. I'm more of a graphic artist. I've done a lot of graphic design in my life. Um, always, I, I don't ever want to do that for a living. So I do it for nonprofits and for friends and uh, things like that. Um, but I love art. Kimry has a fairly extensive art collection, and it includes a lot of representations of bison and a lot of representations of our uh, signature valve. And that's a whole project that we've got going on. And so I've got a group of friends and. Um, Maybe two, three times a year, we uh, we we find an artist. Uh, we we uh, get them to agree to teach us how to do what they do, their form of art. So a lot of the things you're seeing in here are things that we've created that way. And when I do that, I tend to try to represent my, I have my own brand, my own logo, which is something I did, I don't know, decades ago. And uh, I've reproduced my logo probably... 300 or more different ways made it out of all kinds of things the one i'm the most proud of is i i made my logo out of on a 1967 light bright you remember the old light brights of the little pegs you put in the holes and then the light it's black piece of paper and you punch the peg through the paper into a grid of holes and then the light behind lights up the pegs Mm -hmm. and so uh that product came out in 1967. I was born in 1964. I had a light bright when I was a kid, loved playing with it. The problem is they came with like 25 of each color of like seven different colors. And I needed 538 orange pegs and 370 something white pegs. So I bought 16,000 vintage light bright pegs on the internet so I could get enough of the colors that I needed. My wife was not pleased with me, <laughs> but 
that was fun. And uh, so I've done everything from that to, you know, to making it out of cake or, you know, knitting it or, um, and I've actually uh, made uh, three little books of, of those. And so I do that. Um, do I do art on the side, collect art on the side. Um, do love F1 racing. Uh, uh, two of my sons are about as into it as I am. So we watch all the races and we've gone a few times. And COVID kind of disrupted that. And we're, we haven't gotten back, but we're going to... I tell you, I'm not. I'm not happy though that the prices have gone up so substantially since it's Outrageous. become popular. It's just ridiculous. It's probably cheaper to go to like Belgium and go I know, to Spa. I know. Right? So we're gonna have to. We're gonna have to work on that. But yeah, we we do like we like cars. Um, we're current. My sons and I are currently rebuilding a 1969 Mustang Coupe. Her name is Donna. Um, she just came as a as a standard coupe, but she does have a 302 block. It was a two barrel, but we're going to go four barrel with sure. throttle body fuel injection, and and uh, she'll she'll probably be 350 horsepower when we're done. Yeah, got a, got a little lower gear in the rear end, so we'll be able to get across the intersection pretty quick. That's that a fun, be fun project. It is kids, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And just and whenever you get time, you guys work on it together. Yeah, and, and it it has been a very slow process because it's hard to find time. But right. we are we are now putting her back together. So we're okay. we're done with the dis. We took everything off. You know, it's a it's a unibody car it doesn't have a frame mm-hmm. and uh had a lot needed a lot of body work she was a mess but now she's pristine perfect uh white and beautiful and yeah. now we're beginning to put things back on so well what gets you into cars from a young age then well uh i don't know i i kind of thought all young guys were into cars at, at some level you know when i was in high school that was that period of time when um hot rodding late 60s and early 70s cars was a big deal. It was very uh, reachable, you know. It wasn't unusual for a high school guy to have a car like that. I didn't, but a lot of my friends did. And so I just, you know, fell in love with the sound. And I'm a little bit of an adrenaline junkie. I just like to go fast, and I like loud things. And, you know, I've jumped out of an airplane and driven a a race car on a racetrack and a dune buggy you know jumping dune buggies over dunes and so i like shooting guns and blowing things up you know i'm a pretty i'm (laughs) a pretty standard guy you know (laughs) right everything you like i'm like we could be friends yeah Yeah. you take a lot of boxes Uh, (laughs) um that that photo in the background that's is that austin yes first corner of austin yes it is um we have sprint race tickets this year um oh fantastic trying to figure out um, a living situation at the moment of like what we're going to do because we're only going down for the sprint race so I'm friending I don't know if I'm just going to stay in Dallas and get up <laughs> early and go and park instead of staying in Austin but right. we'll figure that out um, but yeah like the I mean we're recording this the Netflix series is coming out very soon which is obviously skyrocketed ticket prices in the, in the States I think it has had an impact yes uh, yeah. but yeah it's uh, it, it's also fun that like it's fun to do and fun to have those conversations and, and that car enthusiasm are with your kids right you yes know, it's it's for me it's you know it's golf as well I played golf with my dad and my granddad growing up you know but when you're building a car together or you're going to a race together there's it's a special bond to do that you know and some sadly some fathers don't have that bond with their kids there's a bond and, and there's also the likelihood that we'll kill each other any given weekend because <laughs> I'm a Mercedes guy okay. and one of my sons is a Red Bull guy and one of my sons just plays off of that and, and will you know root for Ferrari or something just to upset the other two of yeah. us and I'm the only one who's actually invested I actually own Mercedes 
parties and I'm the one paying for tickets when we go to races. And, yeah. and then he wears his Red Bull gear just to, I think, just to irritate me, quite frankly. But um, it's yeah. fun. We have a good time. For uh, Halloween this year, um, I bought my wife a, she's a Max Verstappen fan. I'm mm-hmm. a Lewis fan, being from the UK. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've watched F1 since basically I could remember. And she's got into it recently because of Netflix. And obviously, it's become a Max fan, um, to which I think she's kind of a bandwagon <laughs> fan, right? But I did get her um, off eBay a replica race suit. Oh, wow. She was going to wear it for Halloween. And it was like 120 bucks. Came from middle of nowhere, but it surprisingly showed up within 10 days and it fit perfect. That's uh, great. And it looks like, and she wore it once when he was, you know, we were watching on a Sunday and I'm like, this is just, this is not right. It's not, you know, a, it's so not I okay. Understand. <laughs> I, you know, and then obviously the finish to two years ago's race, you're like, yeah, this is not good I for know. our relationship right now when, you know, and she's jumping around the house and I'm like, don't, I, I can't look at you right I, now. I will <laughs> say that I, I am a Lewis fan more because he drives for Mercedes. I like Lewis. I think he's sure. a classy guy and, and he's obviously a phenomenal driver. Um, I think, I think, and it pains me to say this, but I think Max gets a bad rep. If you go back and look at, watch Lewis race early in his career, he raced just like Max yeah. races now. That's what a young yeah. driver who's trying to win does. They have nothing to lose. Now, when you've got seven championships, yeah. you stop cutting corn, you know, you stop doing that because, yeah. you, so, you know, give him a couple of years and everybody's going to go, Oh, look, he's doing just, you know, so I, you know, they're all great. Uh, You know, one of the things I love about F1 is I just, it, of course, I don't know any of the guys personally, obviously, but they seem to be high caliber people. You know, uh, Lewis is a good guy. Max is a good guy. you know, they, they, I think I think I would get along with them. I think that we would share a lot of the same values. Right. And um, even though they're in, you know, one of the top sports and, you know, an enormous amount of publicity and enormous amount of popularity and a lot of money, you know, going around, they seem to be well-grounded individuals. And I, I can't even imagine how hard they work to do what they do. Yeah, you know, there's a lot you, of leadership traits there that yeah. you can parallel across, yes. right? And, and just taking ownership and being a part of a team. And like yep. it's, it's why we love F1. But you, you know, did you ever think that, you know, do you ever, you mentioned kind of racing and stuff. Do you ever want to get into that? Do you ever think, hey, mm. I might just get a, you know, because no, I mean, racing is f- very expensive, but you can do it in other ways. Yeah. I've got a friend who um, owns a lot of, um, supercars and and races them occasionally and and one day he he put um uh, he put his mclaren in a wall at a racetrack and 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 said out loud well i can get another mclaren and i thought that's probably not the sport for me i you know i'm just probably not cut out for that so no i've i've played around you know there's a lot of a lot of opportunities you can go and and get on a track and and as a as a Mercedes AMG owner, I have an opportunity a couple of times a year if I want to, to go drive um, AMGs on a track. Now they won't let you go 200 miles an hour, right. but you can go faster than you want to go. I promise you, you know, yeah, you don't realize how fast fast is until you're on a track and and the walls coming by at a 160 or 170. That's just really really scary. So yeah. it's fun, but I wouldn't want to do it consistently. Yeah, there's something to it. Traveling around the world, doing that. You know, the, there's a there's a great documentary called The Gentleman Racer. Mm-hmm. If you saw I've that, watched that. I love yes. that documentary. You know, you get all these CEOs that are part of the World Endurance Championship, and that's, you know, it's a big commitment. And that documentary shed a great light on, you know, these guys are running multi million dollar, maybe billion dollar companies. Um, but also they're trying to be professional racing right, drivers right. as well. That's not something that you can kind of do together. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, it, there's obviously there's a lot of other things in the office and that that stand out to me. I recognize that that the this is Farouk. Right? Yes, I only recognize that because he was recently featured in four or five magazine. I was like, yes, that's awesome. Love his dear work. dear friend of mine. He happens to be my architect, so right. he, uh, he's actually done done architecture work for me. Um, but love his art and have have been a fan of his since really early. In fact, I have two of the piece, probably of the first five pieces he ever made. One of them is, is sitting here somewhere. Um, so I have some of his earliest work, and then I think in our in our overall collection, we probably have nine or ten of his pieces. But this thing you're looking at, uh, this bin of, of little blossoms, his art is large blossoms made out of small individual flowers that are all made out of several individual petal sets that are all hand cut. He hand cuts every piece of paper. And so for the last three or four years, every single piece he's made, he's brought me one individual flowerette from that blossom and I put it in this jar and keep it on my desk. It is amazing. Wow. Yeah. Talk about like therapy. Like I'm I'm a big Lego fan and was as a kid and I need need to get back into building because it's just fun. But that is therapy, right? Like (laughs) Putting, yeah. you know, doing uh, puzzles and stuff frustrates me, but in, you know, there's something peaceful about cutting paper into little tiny pieces and putting it together. But uh, finishing up then, uh, two questions. Uh, what up to now, I guess, are you most proud of that, that has stood out to you? And that could be through the company, that could be personally, just something that, you know, hey, I, I'm at this age today, I, I'm really proud of, of whatever it is. Wow. Um, I'm really proud. You know, I have six children. My youngest is 18. He's a freshman at Oklahoma State. My oldest is uh, 28 and has my granddaughter. I have one granddaughter. Um, They are all such unique individuals, which just shocked me. Um, I don't know what I thought was going to happen. I guess I thought I was going to stamp out six little me's, which thank goodness we didn't because that would be a tragedy. (laughs) They're all so unique. They all have their own interests, their own things that they're, that they're good at. But, but each one of them, I think is, um, is really on a on a road to living a healthy life doing very different things, everything from, you know, one of my sons is going to be an engineer. That's great. He's the only one. Um, One's a chef, you know, so very broad interests and very different paths in life, but they all are healthy. And I have good relationships with them. We talk and we share, which was not really true before I went to, went to rehab. So I'm very proud of the fact that I have good relationships with my kids and, and, and I'm proud of them for the people that they're becoming and have become. I'm proud of Kim Ray. I'm proud of my team here. Uh, I really believe that today I could walk away from this place and it would continue. That was not true for most of Kim Ray's history. Uh, and, and that's not unusual. Certainly founder, you know, when Garmin was here, you know, it was his way or the highway and there was no, no shared vision. He had the vision. He made all the decisions that's necessary at the beginning sometimes of an organization, but that's not sustainable. And that's the difficult part is the transition. And I think we've made the transition. I think at this point, um, Kim Ray will continue to be the place that it is and continue to grow um, with or without me being here. And I want to be here and I have a lot more I want to accomplish and want to see Kim Ray accomplish. But I feel comfortable that if I were to die in a fiery crash on a racetrack, which is not unlikely, but you know, hopefully won't, yeah. that, that this place would be okay. And that 
means a lot to me. Uh, me means a, an incredible amount to me. And then um, I think we have created the the beginning of what will really be the legacy of my grandfather and my father and my leadership. It's not just this company, but all the other companies and leaders that we can touch through the foundation. It's still nascent, right? We've only been doing that for a couple of years, but it's growing rapidly and we have an amazing story to tell and lots and lots of things that we can share. But more importantly, as those leaders come together in that herd, they're going to be the ones helping each other Mm -hmm. and sharing things with each other. And that will take on a life of its own. And again, I think that will become something that sustains itself. So I'm very proud of of that. I think that, that for me is maybe even more significant that I, that I hopefully have led well here because it'll have more impact, I think, over time. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Like that, once more people come in, and you hire more people, and people are here longer, they get used to that herd mentality and that culture and and that leadership style and, and community. I mean, naming all the buzzwords here, but they all work, and it's all mm-hmm. true. You know, and you're right. Like I said, you could leave here today, and, and it, it could still work. The second question, which I was going to follow up with, is, you know. See, you know, starting here today, what what is the, what is today's and this year's kind of focus for the side of the foundation? You mentioned bringing the podcast back when you have mm-hmm. some more time and other things, but you know, what do you want that you know? And, and you mentioned legacy. What do you want if you could wave a magic wand and hey, this is what we could do in the next you know five, ten, whatever many years? Like what what do you see? What is the vision for that to be the legacy? Yeah, you know, the the foundation has a number of key kind of components to what we do. Um, Some of them are, you know, are event-based, like putting on Recon, our our annual fall convention, which is always about leadership and and what leadership should be doing. We're focusing more and more on mental health. We're going to have an event this spring on mental health called Thrive. We also um, do some economic forecast. We have an economic forecast breakfast in January, and it's different than most because we focus on socioeconomic issues. So, how does the how do you know we, we we're trying to predict what the economy is going to do? All leaders are doing that, right? We don't want to know what's going to happen. We want to focus on if those things happen, what do we as leaders need to do to mitigate the negative impact on our people and to allow our people to seize opportunities if the opportunities are there. So we want to make that more about our people and less about just the bottom line of the company. But I think one of the most significant things that we're involved in, and I think something that's going to grow is mentoring. And that's both mentoring um, emerging leaders, getting them matched up with a mentor from another company. So they sometimes get a different viewpoint, but then also helping companies have an internal mentoring program. That used to be the norm. Like before corporations and industrialization, you went and apprenticed with somebody and they taught you how to do the job that they were doing. You learned by walking with them. And we have lost that. Now we send everybody off to business school. They come out of business school, they get a job. And the first thing we say is forget everything they taught you in business school. We're going to have to teach you how to do it. Well, maybe we should just start there. I don't have anything against business school or I have a son in business school. That's great. But we need to be, um, we need to be nurturing and growing leaders. And here's the great thing about mentoring. It's not a teacher student relationship. It's a doing life together relationship. And I mentor anywhere from four to half a dozen people at any one time. Um, my gig is I have breakfast at 6.30, and if you want to meet with me, I'll have, you can come have breakfast with me at 6.30, and I actually have a lot of people take me up on that. So 
I learn as much in those relationships as they're learning. They give me different insights. I mean, there's something really fantastic about, I mean, I'm almost 60 years old. I'm almost 59, actually. But sitting down with somebody who's in their mid-20s and is just getting into business, and they're thinking about different things. They see the world differently. They know things that I don't know. They're reading things that I would never think to read, right? I get all kinds of information from them. So we try to we try to communicate that mentoring is a mutual growth opportunity, but it's so important for the next generation of leaders. So we're trying to kind of be the the experts on mentoring. We have a, a program called Bison Leader Link, and, and it's got a couple of different um, ways that that gets actuated in outside and inside companies. I see that growing immensely because there's a huge need for it. And every place we're doing it, people are like, oh, I want to, we're, next year we're going to put 20 people in the program kind of deal. So... Yeah. That's that's what I think is going to happen. Super exciting. Yeah. And, uh, it's great to, to kind of timestamp this and, and look back on it in five, ten years, and then we can see how that's grown, right? And do a podcast again in ten years and see where we're at and what yeah, it is. Doing podcasts and writing books are dangerous things to do because <laughs> then that stuff is there, right? Yes. People can go back and, well, you said this five years ago. You yeah. know, I'm like, oh, yeah, I really wish I hadn't said that. So yeah. hopefully I won't regret any of this five years from now, but no, we'll see. I highly doubt that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, thank you so much for spending an hour of time. Uh, oh, absolutely. And sharing your story. Uh, I'll link for people listening. I'll link the book down below. I'll link the website for the, the foundation. And you guys go check all that stuff out. Um, if there's anyone listening that doesn't uh, know what Kim Ray is, I will link that website and you can, Great. you know, if you have an oil field company that needs valves and I'm sure you're already using them, but if you're not, I'll link that as well. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it um, for people listening. We'll catch you next episode. Cheers. Hope you guys enjoyed that great episode. Thank you so much for listening. As always, huge shout out to our sponsors, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, sharing Oklahoma story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com and follow them on Instagram for daily updates at oklahomahof. Our other sponsor, the Chickasaw Nation, amazing sponsor they do amazing things for the state and they're always sponsoring something in oklahoma they're a huge supporter of oklahoma and without their support we wouldn't be able to do what we do and our third sponsor is diffie ford lincoln down in el reno now this one makes me so happy because these guys are great friends of mine um play a lot of golf together i've bought my cars from them do most of my oil changes down there, have a cup of coffee, hang out down in El Reno. It's a good spot to go. And not only are they great friends, but they provide a great service. So for over 60 years, a third generation family owned Oklahoma business down in El Reno. They're also in Bethany as well. So people in the Bethany area know the Diffies really well. But if you're looking for anything new used, um, Ford, Lincoln, or whatever, I'm sure they could find anything you want. Um, check them out, diffieford.net, and then on Instagram at diffiefordlincoln. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram.